Hello and thank you for tuning in once again to the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host as always, John F. Taylor, and we are always brought to you by Herpeticulture House Magazine, your only 100% digital reptiles magazine that covers captive care, herpetology, conservation, and many, many more topics. Uh, you can find us at herphousemag.com. Once again, it's herphousemag.com. Do drop by, check us out, grab a subscription. It's only 10 bucks for six issues plus the uh, annual, which is a $5 value. So do check us out there. This week's guest is Dr. Warren Booth, uh, and he is going to be talking to us about reptile parthenogenesis, which is a topic near and dear to my heart in regards to the fact that I own a couple of night lizards, which are parthenogenic, and that means producing without uh, the need for a male. Wouldn't ladies be lucky for that, huh? All right, so once again, this is Dr. Warren Booth, and he's talking about reptile parthenogenesis, and this is the Reptile Living Room. Here we go. And today we are on the line with uh, Dr. Warren Booth, who is doing uh, some fascinating research in reptile uh, parthenogenesis. And uh, without further ado, we'll just get right into it. Uh, Dr. Booth, why don't you explain to us why uh, parthenogenesis is such a uh, novelty, I guess is the best way to put it. That's a good question. Uh, Parthenogenesis used to be considered an evolutionary novelty because it was only ever really observed in one or two samples that were kept in captivity, uh, and it was thought to be this kind of um, syndrome of captivity. Animals being brought in, they weren't under natural conditions, and therefore they don't do natural things. And, you know, that kind of held up for a long time because if we look at the first real work on parthenogenesis in reptiles, it was in uh, 1997 when Gordon Shewitt and his colleagues put together a paper on uh, some garter snake species and on a couple of rattlesnake species, and they'd all been in captivity for a while. And really, everything went quiet until about 2003, and then there was the paper came out about Burmese pythons. And again, in that instance, the Burmese pythons had been in captivity for a long time. In fact, I think it was a captive-bred animal, possibly. It might have been. Um, but again, it was not under what people would consider natural conditions, which, you know, if, if we're talking about animals born in captivity, what is natural and what is unnatural is, right. is up for anybody's discussion, but, you know, it was still a captive animal. In 2010, I then, uh, 2009, I carried out some work on boa constrictors, and we showed over, over the space of about two years that we uh, documented parthenogenesis in boa constrictors, in Colombian rainbow boas, in copperheads, and in cottonmouths, and I've got work on some Neurodia species, we had a Thamnophis, a, a checkered garter snake paper come out, so it's about five species there, and I'm sitting with uh, samples in my lab right now of reticulated pythons, ball pythons, uh, some other water snake species, some varanid lizard species, uh, feral ants, uh, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, prairie rattlesnakes, so there's quite a few other additional samples, and, and I've got New Caledonian uh, geckos sample c coming in as well, wow. so I've got, you know, there's a lot of species seem to be doing this. But it still didn't take away from that whole point about being this evolutionary novelty where it was, it was out of a natural situation. It was in, it was in captivity. Mm -hmm. And that all changed earlier this year whenever uh, myself and colleagues, uh, Gordon Shewitt and uh, Charles Smith and Pam Eskridge and Joe Mandelson and Shannon Haas um, put together a paper where we documented parthenogenesis, facultative parthenogenesis for the first time in, in a wild vertebrate species. And, and in wild populations, and that was in both copperheads and cottonmouths. We detected parthenogenesis in really in, in quite high frequency uh, in in two um, separate geographically separate populations, and that changed everything because at that point it showed us that parthenogenesis is not a captive syndrome. It's something that is likely to be happening in the wild, 
and what influence it has on wild populations, we don't know. Uh, but it brings back that question. A lot of people would turn around and say, well, the reason snakes are doing this is because, or any species is doing this, is because they're in isolation and they don't have a suitable mate, and therefore by reproducing partners genetically, um, they may be able to produce a mate and then find a population. Well, we can now test that theory because we have the parthenogens that were produced in the wild, and we have their mothers and we have wild animals, we have wild samples from those populations, so we can now test that theory, which is kind of cool. Wow. Uh, and then where we go from there, we, you know, we're looking into lots of other aspects as why parthenogenesis could actually be occurring. But parthenogenesis is not just restricted to reptiles, it occurs in, uh, it's been documented in birds, and in fact it was in birds that it was first ever documented in the late 18th century, where they documented it in pigeons, uh, oh. domestic pigeons, and then about 30 or 40 years later, um, at the beginning of the 19th century, they documented it in uh, some domestic file. And then later in like the 1950s, 1960s and 70s, you got this real burst of, of, of work carried out on, on domestic turkeys. And uh, it was found that the turkeys actually produce a lot of parthenogenetic offspring. And then everything went quiet until essentially 1997 um, in terms of you know, kind of birds and reptiles. And in between that, uh, just after that, then we had some work by a friend of mine, Damien Chapman. He published work on um, on several shark species, uh, um, hammerheads, uh, I think it was a requiem shark, and some uh, bamboo uh, bamboo sharks. So it's um, it's certainly something that appears quite common. Now that we find it in the wild in reptiles, uh, Damien is now going through his samples from field-collected sharks to see if he finds any incidents of... Um, that could be parthenogenesis in those populations. And that's something that I'm also expanding in the reptile populations that I'm working with here in Oklahoma. Wow. So it's no longer a novelty. It's something that it really happens, and it happens in the wild, and, and, it, and, it, and it must happen for a reason. So my, you know, one of the drives in my lab right now is actually trying to understand what is what are those reasons for it happening. Right, and that's the other thing, too. You mentioned that you found it in geographically distinct uh, yeah. locations, or uh, Species. Now, yeah. why why would that be important to understanding parthenogenesis, being that it's in geographically different areas? Well, you know, there's a theory in in birds. Um, it was shown in the 1970s that birds that were inoculated with a number of vaccines showed a higher tendency to produce parthenogenetic offspring. Oh. We know that in invertebrates, if they have a certain endosymbionts, they switch from sexual to asexual reproduction. And that tells us, or at least that suggests to us, that we can have a viral or a bacterial component that could be um, driving these individuals to switch from sexual to asexual reproduction. And therefore, if they're in geographically distinct areas, it suggests that the likelihood of a similar virus or bacterial strain um, is not present in both. It's something we have to test. We, have to, we are actually testing right now to see if there's a viral or a bacterial component to this. But the fact that it occurred in two different species, they're both within the genus Echistrodon, so they're both... Um, you know, the copperheads and cottonmouths, which are very related. Mm -hmm. But um, the fact that it occurred in different species in different geographic regions suggests to us that this is a, a natural phenomenon and it's not something that's restricted to a geographic location. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of neat. It's funny because all of this work in my lab, all of this work that I've been carrying out started from that simple boa constrictor paper, which was a, a kind of who's the father yeah. kind of test. Right, it was, uh, you know, I've had this boa with four males, which one's the father? We think it might be parthenogenesis, but, you know, it's possibly going to be a, a father here. Right. And from there, everything just took off, and uh, and I get emails and phone calls on a, on a weekly basis 
um, with samples coming in, asking if I could test them, and, and, and I'm happy to test them if I've if I've got the time. I'm sure. more happy to test them if they're species that I've not shown parthenogenesis in before, because mm-hmm. um, one of my interests, and, and with my collaborator Gordon Stewart, is to look at um, how parthenogenesis is distributed across the phylogeny of reptiles, and do we find specific geographic or specific genetic groups that are more predisposed to it, or that have a uh, that have specific characteristics, because parthenogenesis in reptiles um, is, is really quite interesting. They're the, they're the one group of, of organisms that can produce solely by parthenogenesis. So we have what's known as obligate parthenogenesis, mm-hmm. which produce solely by parthenogenesis, and they are things like the um, the night lizards, some of the, you know, the whiptails, some geckos, where males are not found in the populations; they're only females. Uh, but then we have the reptiles also show the ability to produce um, facultatively, which means they can switch between sexual and asexual reproduction. And that's really kind of a very unique system. You know, we find it in reptiles, we find it in birds, and uh, we find it in sharks, uh, and they're really the only groups that we find that in. And only in reptiles have we found that they produce really, you know, viable offspring. In sharks they produce some, but in reptiles we find it really quite frequently, and, and the offspring we find are often, are often viable. But they show these really cool trends, you know, where in the basal uh, are the more primitive snakes like the boids and the pythonids. Mm-hmm. They produce half clones of the mother and they are uh, they're female. Whereas in the advanced snakes, the Xenophidian group, the rattlesnakes and, and water snakes and so on, they produce half clones of the mother but they are male. So why is this switchover occurring between producing female and male and why do they not produce males and females equally? Because the female snake, is her sex chromosomes are Z and W and a male snake is ZZ. WW was considered non-viable. We've proved that wrong. But why does it, why do these females not produce ZZ males and WW females in equal proportions? And they don't. So there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that, that we're addressing, and you know we're looking at the other components that could be related to that. So it's it's just kind of one of those little fascinating topics that that started from a simple paternity test, essentially. <laughs> and thankfully it's led. You know, since then I got my own lab and my a faculty position, and and something that I can actually focus time and effort on instead of working on, on side projects that uh, that were paying my bills. Right. So it's kind of cool stuff. Now, what impact, because uh, this is always, you know, the biggest question of, you know, what does this mean to humans? You know, why is this research important, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. Why is it important? I think, in general, it's uh, it's important more of just that people find it just kind of obscure and an anomaly, something of interest. Uh, it's never going to really impact their daily lives. But for someone that works in conservation or somebody that works in like a lab, um, you know, breeding programs, for someone that's a reptile breeder, for example, we know a lot of people that invest huge amounts of money in buying the latest ball python morph or boa morph or so on. This has got major implications because the fact that reptiles, and particularly boas and pythons and, and the xenophidian group, the advanced snakes, the fact that they show such a high uh, frequency of parthenogenetic um, Production means that whenever we breed a male to a female, a male morph that we've imported to a normal female, um, all of the offspring are—you know—we cannot say for sure unless we genetically test them that these, those offspring are, are are actually sired by that male. Um, they could have been produced parthenogenetically, and people think it's such a rare phenomenon; it's not going to happen to them. And you'd be surprised about the number of shed, shed skin samples that I've got sent to me, and I still get them from boa breeders and from from um, this. Um, Last month, I got samples in from Europe uh, of a number of ball pythons, 
that were bred and high dollar morph ball, ball pythons that uh, it looks like they're parthenogenetic. Um, so if you then invest, you buy a pair of heterozygous or a bunch of female heads for the latest you know, morph um, and you never produce one from it, um, that doesn't mean that uh, the mother didn't produce it. It means that the father may not have contributed to this offspring and only genetic testing will actually determine that. So it has major implications in, in that kind of, for the, for the, the snake breeder. Mm -hmm. But in conservation and in zoo work, it's got major implications because um, if we go into a population and we remove animals for a captive breeding program, we need to know that those animals are genetically diverse. And if we have removed animals that are parthenogenetic, then they are instantly um, missing half their diversity, essentially. They are um, wow. um, they're genetically um, monomorphic across m uh, most of their genome. But also, the offspring that are produced from those animals, um, and, and I'm talking particularly about reptiles, sure. uh, and birds, and, and sharks, uh, we need to check that they are definitely sexually produced and not asexually produced. You know, so it's, it's, it has implications for conservation. In, the, in this modern world where a lot of people breed snakes, mm -hmm. it's got certainly it's got implications for uh, knowing what you've produced and being able to stand behind what you produce. But really, the only way that, that that can be determined is if you produce, um, if you have these animals genetically tested to show that there is a, a maternal and a paternal contribution. And people might think, but you know, the litter that I produced had males and females in it, uh, but that doesn't mean, and therefore it can't be part of the genetic. Well, some of the work that I'm about to put out is going to show that to be very different. And in litters of ball pythons and reticulated pythons, we have found litters that were comprised of both sexual and asexual offspring. Yeah, um, and you know, and now, because you, your work is actually showing that this isn't just um, reptiles holding over sperm from previous breedings. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. And it, basically, what I'm showing is that, in, certainly in the cases of the boa constrictors, that the females had access to males. And in the case of the wild populations, because of, we know the, the male to female um, sex ratios in, in, that, in those wild populations, we know that those females had, had access to males. And we can also, we can exclude the, the, the probabilities of um, sperm storage. And we actually did that in a paper in 2011 where we, we documented what is the longest ever record of sperm storage in a vertebrate species, and the longest genetically confirmed um, record. And that was in an eastern diamondback rattlesnake. It was collected as a 30-inch, um, you know, yearling mm -hmm. uh, female, and five and a half years later, she gave birth to 19 offspring, males and females, and uh, she had never been with a male in captivity. Wow. So she had made it in the wild. What's interesting about that is she had made it in the wild and stored sperm for five and a half years, and rattlesnakes, we believe, have a certain ability to do that due to a number of physiological adaptations they've got. But the fact that she also made it whenever she was sexually immature and she stored yeah. that sperm, and, and after five and a half years, it wasn't a case of having a bunch of deformed or stillborn offspring, and infertile ova, it was 19 healthy offspring. So we can actually determine if it's sperm storage or if it's parthenogenesis. Wow. That's I just phenomenal. So she just basically just said, no, I'm not ready yet, and then yep. you know, <laughs> later on. Well, the interesting thing is the breeder, the person that, that collected her had said that he had originally collected her to eventually breed from her, but she just never grew the way the other ones did. She didn't feed that great and so on, so he never introduced her to a female, but he cycled her as if she was going to be breeding, and he cycled her as if she was in the wild, and basically she stored sperm, and eventually she got to the point where she ovulated, and she had sperm stored, and that was released, and there's reasons we believe that can happen. There's, um, there's theoretically this um, twisting of the uterus that can go on. 
towards okay. the female mates and the sperm is the uterus um, the uterine tract essentially twists and kind of um, you know, think about a piece of candy in a wrapper where it's twisted into it it holds it in place yeah. well theoretically that's what it can do with sperm it can hold it in this little package that's not being um, uh, interfered with by other um, you know chemicals or fluids in the body uh, they may also be able to store the sperm in these little dead end tubules uh, in, in the uh, in the reproductive tract so yeah, they, they have physiological adaptations for that. We know ball pythons seem to be able to do the same thing, as can uh, blood pythons. They can store sperm and produce very healthy offspring a year or even two years later. But um, the, the, uh, the rattlesnakes seem to, be, seem to have this ability to do it for a very long period of time. Wow. Yeah, and that's obviously got implications as well for conservation. Yeah. Um, you know, when you bring animals in to captivity and you want to breed from them uh, with specific males, you know, to produce a, a lineage of animals, you need to know that the offspring you produced are sired from the fat of the male that was used, and not yeah. the resulting from stored sperm. And there's also instances where females are, you know, a ball python breeder is breeding a specific male to a specific female this year and produces eggs, and in that litter of eggs, you find some offspring that were sired from a male from last year. So you get sperm mixing occurring, uh, and therefore, you know, this parthenogenetic work and the sperm storage work kind of shows us that. Really, we don't. We are not necessarily in control of what's happening in our in our collections or in zoo collections if we're breeding um, animals, specific animals. Um, there's certainly the ability to store sperm, and there's very much the ability to produce parts of it genetically. That's just fascinating. And this all came from. Uh, it was a boa constrictor, correct? That's right. It was a work for Sharon Moore, and it was Jeff Ronnie had, had told Sharon Moore to contact me. Right. And uh, and she did, and she sent me the samples uh, for the first litter. And I was working on the paper, and I, I called her up and said, Sharon, this is remarkable. Uh, it's parthenogenesis, but this is not just interesting because it's parthenogenesis. It's interesting because in, in the previous papers that have been produced, um, you've seen male offspring, you haven't seen female, apart from the, the Burmese python. And I'll, I'll get to the Burmese python issue in a minute, because uh, in the recent weeks we've shown that to be questionable, That's the, that, that publication. Oh. Um, but... Um, the uh, the boa was interesting because it produced females and they were half clones of the mother and that means they only had one copy of uh, of each chromosome essentially that was doubled and uh, why that was interesting is because that means that the offspring had to be WW sex chromosomes females are ZW but the Z is essentially if it's going to be a half clone it's going to be ZZ which is a male these were females therefore they had to be WW and since the 1960s the WW sex chromosomal arrangement has been considered non-viable, and therefore it doesn't exist. The, the, the um, offspring never developed. What we had after the, second, uh, after the female produced the second time, we had 22 offspring that were very, very healthy, and I've got one of them in my collection at home, and I've got f um, four other um, female parthenogenetic boas uh, in my collection here in the lab, and, and since then I've shown it in maybe five or six other boa constrictor litters, and I've got a bunch of them. Jeff Ronnie's got a, a handful of them for me, mm. and I'm just waiting for an animal permit to come through in the university so that I can take those animals into my lab. Uh, but I've shown it in, in other people's collections, and that's a very real sex chromosomal arrangement. And we know we showed some cool things with that, you know, whenever we, because we, we had to prove that they were female also. We can just assume by proving that it's female. Right. Because some of these parthenogens have had deformities of the gonads genitalia, so we had to actually perform live surgery on one of the female uh, parthenogens, and we did so, and we also matched that up with some sexually produced uh, boas of the same age, and I had I had several litters that year, and we used 
two males and two females from some litters that I'd produced that were sexually produced. And uh, we found that in the females, they only had ovaries, and in the parthenogens, they only had ovaries. But in the males, at a year old, they had both ovaries and testes. It's kind of weird. Um, and uh, so therefore, the ovaries must <coughs> generate at some point before sexual maturity. And that's something we're going to follow at some point. It, you know, I've got a, I've got a litter of um, Nicaraguan, Central American boas right now that I can test that with over time, just grow them on and perform live surgery on them at every four to six months. And we might do that. You know, I've, I still haven't decided whether I'm going to sell them or give them away or just keep them for studies. But um, obviously, they're, they're not going to be euthanized. They're, they're very healthy animals, and the surgery is, is essentially um, a very um, easy process and mm -hmm. relatively non-invasive. It's just kind of laparoscopic um, approach. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so there's some really cool things that, uh, we're finding out about reptiles nowadays uh, with molecular markers, and that's the thing that's made it made it different. And the fact that we're showing it so often is the fact that we have these molecular tools, and that whenever you know we were, it was kind of interesting. Whenever that boa constrictor paper came out, it went worldwide. The story went worldwide in, in the space of about a week. Yeah. And I was getting interviews from from here to China to Vietnam to Australia, all over Europe, and for two weeks of my life, that kind of, all I did was write emails to journalists and, and take phone calls. Well, I remember uh, the last time we had talked, I think we were on the phone together, and you had just gotten an email from, I want to yeah, say it was like Harper's Bazaar or something, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, oh, yeah, man, that was you know, hilarious. I was like, wow, yeah. Harper's, really? Yeah, you know, so they bring it up. And that paper that came out, the, the, the Wild Parthenogenesis paper, that did it even faster. Within 24 hours, I had phone calls from, from here to Australia. Um, so something that, that people really find it fascinating. Um, which is cool, you know, it, it, that paper and the boa constrictor paper had been very, very highly read and very highly downloaded um, papers, um, so people seem to find it interesting. And also, it kind of sets me up as, uh, sets up my work that I work on reptiles as well, and having founded a new lab, my plan was to work primarily on mammals and to have my reptiles as a side component. And right now, the mammals are taking very much of a backseat, and uh, most of my work right now is is on on reptiles and since we last spoke you know the number of projects just exploded you know, <laughs> looking at my note, my note paper in front of me and uh, I think you've had Melissa Amarello on before talking about rattlesnakes yeah yeah um, Melissa yes, Amarello uh, with her. yeah oh, nice. I'll be working with her on rattlesnakes Del Donardo and Gordon Show working on Gila monsters uh, Troy Baird uh, working on Australian water rock and social structure oh wow Gordon Show done a bunch of parthenogenesis stuff and, and a nice thing with uh, Todd Casteau uh, who's a, a great um uh, geneticist, and uh, he works a lot on, on genomic, taking genomic approaches. To study. Mm -hmm. well, basically, he's the guy that's done the, the copperhead genome and the Burmese python genome and so on. Oh, okay. We're about to uh, start a massive project on Burmese pythons that could really change the way um, we this whole story about Burmese pythons in the Everglades okay. uh, is panning out. So, you know, the way we're, we're doing it is we're going to be taking an, an approach where we're actually um, taking a full genome approach, we're looking at animals in the Everglades, we're going into Indonesia and Vietnam and so on and collecting animals and doing genomic comparisons to find out pretty much exactly where they came from. Because we know that the population in the Everglades is genetically very depauperate. It came from essentially a single introduction. And we should be able to trace that back to the source, the geographic source that they came from. And from that, we will be able to make new climate models, which are based on animals in that region. And instead of it being you know, the climate models that were produced spanned at least two species and across a massive range of temperatures, 
um, where these these animals will not survive. And if you know, if you take animals even within one species, you, you, you put them from a very very cold part of the range to a very warm part of the range, they're, they're, they may not survive. They may not have the physiological adaptations in their um, in those in those populations to allow them to survive. So we're going to take a very different approach, and it's going to be very expensive, but it's going to be very very interesting. Um, and we're actually I'm flying down to Dallas in early December to, to talk about that project more, and we're planning to go full steam ahead in January and uh, start working on that. And that's going to lead into some work with with boa, boa constrictors as well, um, looking at invasive populations of boas and how we can actually look at these in, in a totally different sense now, looking at them in terms of what part of their genomes are are showing selective ad, ad advantages to environments. And whenever they go through these bottlenecks, such as the, the dramatic freezes that happened in the Everglades, right. exactly how, exactly what what is that doing to the genome of the Burmese pythons in, in terms of the population that's left? How much diversity have we lost? Because bottlenecks, these demographic bottlenecks, can have a devastating effect on genetic diversity within the population, and it can decrease it dramatically. And with that decrease, you have the um, the loss of diversity, which means the theoretically the loss of adaptive potential. Um, and therefore that can send the populations into this kind of extinction vortex. So we're going to take that entire approach with the Burmese pythons and the boas, and that's going to be, um, that is something I'm, I'm really excited about. And that, that's something that came about literally a day or two after we spoke last. Wow. Um, so I, I will definitely keep you guys um, informed about that project how it uh, as it develops and how it's developing, because um, that promises to be uh, a really cool story. <coughs> Very definitely. And of course, you know, if you need any volunteer uh, laborers to, uh, you know, carry packs or anything in Vietnam or wherever I, I would going, you, you know, you would be surprised how many offers I've had so far. <laughs> oh, I'm from, sure. You know, I'm sure. I've had a lot of relatives that have come out of the woodwork <laughs> wanting to come and carry stuff, uh, and a lot of students have already offered um, dramatically uh, to uh, to carry packs. One thing that we really want, um, and which is something that your uh, listeners. My people to help with is um, we would love to have shed skin samples from captive Burmese pythons. Oh wow! And all okay. we need, all we need would be you know a three or four inch section of the skin. We don't need the entire skin of a 16 foot Burmese python. Three or four inches of it, them dry in an envelope and sent to me in the post um, is all we need, and we we can extract DNA from that, and we can use that sample as a comparison against wild populations and against the Everglades and so on. Because uh, what we what we expect to see is that the captive population that we have in, in the United States is genetically very different than the Everglades population, um, and uh, we will be able to show that humans are not releasing uh, Burmese pythons into the Everglades, and if they are, they're not having a, an effect on the genetic diversity, and therefore they're not having an effect in contributing um, to the population that's there. Um, so any of the readers that have, or any of your listeners that have Burmese pythons that would that would like to contribute. Uh, we would love to take anything that you've got in terms of shed skin samples, just separate envelopes, write on what the sex is, if it's a color morph, who it came from, if you know, what age it is, and just drop it in the, in the regular snail mail and send it to my lab, and, I, and I'll, I'll get that. Likewise, if anybody's in, in Florida and, his, uh, and comes across, um, you know, dead um, Burmese pythons on the, on the roads or comes across shed skin from Burmese pythons, and the roads, uh, we would love to get tissues or um, or the shed skin from those also, with some kind of idea of where they came from within the Everglades. You know, I've already talked to uh, Tommy Crutchfield and Sean Heflick, okay. and they're going to be um, sending me samples uh, that they have, uh, and it means that we can use that as a preliminary data set to start testing our our hypotheses before we kind of go full guns uh, next spring. You know, we're we're planning a trip to Indonesia, Vietnam, and 
and unfortunately to get the samples for that we'll probably have to go in the, gonna have to go into these skin trade kind of um, situations mm. where they're yeah. skinning a lot of animals and, and producing a lot of animal waste but from that we can from an area we can get a lot of samples I mean, it's a horrible kind of situation to be in hopefully it's going to be better for the long-term good of what we're doing but um, if we just went there to um, kind of look for snakes everywhere in the forest it's going to be very long and uh, we're not going yeah, to yield a lot of data I was going to say, you could spend days and weeks yeah, and months probably out months there. Yeah, months or years, yeah. yeah. Right. So if we go to these skin trade areas and these more remote areas, we're likely to get samples that were collected geographically from a very um, short range, and, and therefore we have some real idea of where they came from. Um, wow. So we're planning to do that next um, spring, uh, maybe into the summer, and next spring and summer we're, we're planning some uh, trips to the Everglades to start um, uh, collecting samples there also. Uh, but the captive people that have got Burmese pythons in captivity, they can really make a big difference and a big impact on a study that is not um, that is not related in any way to the nonsense that has come out over the last few years on Burmese pythons. And this is actually taking a genetic approach using very sound um, scientific methods to really understand what's happening with Burmese pythons. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we could essentially the herpeticulture industry. <coughs> Essentially, with the data that you're about to produce, um, if it comes out the way that uh, you think it will, which I'm sure it will, we could actually use that yes. to combat the current legislation. That's correct. The reason being is that we can use this for a number of reasons. We can use it to show the genetic diversity of the population in the Everglades and how it differs from that in the, in the, uh, in the captive populations. But we can also use it to show that the, the climate models that were produced are based on unsigned science and they were based on multiple species over a massive geographic range where we can actually take, uh, we can actually pinpoint the area where these Burmese pythons from the Everglades originated and use that for our parameters for our climate models. And we can also do a number of studies from animals from the Everglades to test for um, abilities to survive in extreme heats or extreme colds across what would be the range of the species. So we can eliminate areas of, you know, of that, of that um, kind of the temperature um, range that they can survive, that, that they may experience, mm -hmm. but we'll be able to narrow that down and, and create an accurate climate model for where these animals are going to go. And I would, I would put money on it that that climate model is pretty much going to be restricted to the south of Florida. Wow. You know, there's, I, I just cannot see, well, there's been papers that have been put out there, you know, um, Mike Dorcas put out a paper that showed that the animals that he released into, um, into Savannah River Ecology Lab facility all died over the winter. Right, right. And, you know, they might think that, uh, that oh, it was a really harsh winter. Well, you know what? That's nature. That's what happens. Yeah. You know, we find harsh winters every now and again. You know, yeah. so what are you trying to tell me? You're trying to tell me that, that because that they didn't survive that winter, they're going to survive every other winter. That's just nonsense. We've taken natural conditions into consideration. Right. Uh, and that's something that they seem to try and avoid doing because if they if they turn around and show that Burmese pythons do die in South Carolina, which is quite a long way ways away from Maryland and Washington, where they said these things can spread up to, I think suggests that um, you know that, that their um, their original climate model from from uh, Gordon Rada is slightly flawed, and that yeah. they need to really think scientifically about where these animals are coming from, and more specifically, they need to get the species right to start off with before they start collecting. Uh, climate models, uh, climate data to create these models. Yeah. That, yeah. So you know, I'm, I'm not a Burmese python keeper. I'm not a reticulated python keeper, and therefore, you know, I've got no uh, no stake in that. But right. my stake is that I 
like to see sound science. Right. If the science is wrong, then I've got a real issue with that. You know, just in, in the last um, two days, uh, I was introducing two of my graduate students to uh, molecular analysis of, of population genetic data. Mm -hmm. And instead of using data sets that I could generate for them, they're still collecting their own samples. I, I asked them, to, or they, they, uh, they, they got uh, data sets from previously published studies. So they just emailed the professors and said, look, I liked your paper. Could you send me the data set to reanalyze yep. for a class? And, uh, and they did that. And, and with one of the data sets, I always said that paper is always stuck in my head as being unusual. It just doesn't seem right based on what I've seen and what other people have seen. And the professor was very, very happy to send the data set. Et cetera. The first thing we do in our data set is just check for inconsistencies. And then we've got a computer program that we can look at for inconsistencies in genetic data. And that first came up, the, the whole um, genotypic scoring was, uh, was uh, inconsistent. And that, that, made, that completely nullified that whole paper. Uh, that, um, so I, I, I emailed that professor today thanking them for the data set and just saying, you know, suggesting a few ways that we could go to rectify that. You know, because I certainly they didn't know it. This paper was from 2001, uh, you know, and, and at the time they thought they were doing it right. But the fact that I've got that and shown that it's, that it's wrong, it'll be interesting to see what comes back from that professor. But I, I have a feeling they'll come back and they'll want to try and um, revise that paper. But the important thing is that that paper now has to be retracted from the publication, from the journal that it was published in, because it's scientifically unsigned. And therefore, the, the, date, the, the results that were generated and the conclusions that were generated are incorrect. And I believe that with the climate, with correct climate model data for Burmese pythons, that is exactly what is going to have to happen. There's going to have to be a retraction of that original paper to show that it, it, um, that, uh, it overestimated the range of Burmese python invasion. And we know, you know, the Burmese pythons have invaded the Everglades, and I don't think anybody's going to deny that. The, Ever the Burmese pythons are a, are a problem in the Everglades, but the problem is this is a, an Everglades um, uh, issue. It's not. A, uh, it's not a North Carolina issue. It's not a Washington issue. It's not a Texas issue. It's an issue where the animals are in the Everglades, and that's where it, that should be restricted um, to the Everglades or to South Florida. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I just because <laughs> I saw you uh, talking about that paper that you were, you know, you were taught, you were just referencing about. Uh, you know, the incorrect data sets and things of that nature, and I was like, wow, that would definitely put a damper on things. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there are people that produce data sets, and, you know, they think they're doing the right thing at the time, and it turns out, you know, with new analytical methods, it turns out to be incorrect, but what people do in that case is they generally, they retract their paper. Right. They say, we did it wrong, but here's a new paper using these new methods, and, you know, the, guess what, the story's the same, or the story has changed. But right. they, as, a, as a scientist, you want to make sure that what you're putting out is correct to the best of your opinion or to the best of your knowledge and the best of your ability. And if things change over time, then, you know, that's, that's what science is all about. If things change, well, these guys can put out a new paper saying, you know, we put that out before, we got it wrong, but here's a new model, here's, a new, here's data based on a new model, and it changes the range dramatically. Or it increases the range dramatically. But as long as that is based on sound science, then I do not have an issue. I've got major issues if it is based on speculation, yeah. uh, and unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in this uh, in these instances with with Burmese pythons. I've published a paper with some co-authors in Mexico where we documented the the boa constrictor invasion into Cozumel, and you know, does that mean that I um, that I'm against boa constrictors? Of course not. I breed boa constrictors. I keep like, yeah. seventy boa constrictors. 
I don't want to say boa constrictors banned, but right. I, we use sound science to show an invasion of a species into an area. And therefore, from that, we can start um, developing management strategies for the removal of those animals or for how we treat those animals. Because what's happening is you've got an animal that is now in a location that it never was before, and we know it was never there based on archaeological data. We've got an animal that's there, but in every other part of its range, that animal is protected by CITES. And therefore, but so therefore, how do we treat a CITES-protected animal in an invasive range? How do, do we kill it? Do we protect it? You know, what's the issue? But the fact that we went in and we were able to show genetically that this came from a specific number of invasions in specific locations or specific areas, then we, we now have more data that we can use for controlling those populations. The problem with the Everglades, for example, is nobody really knows what's going on. There was a paper, a white paper put out um, a number of years ago, um, I think it was a white paper, put out a number of years ago by Tim Collins and Barbie Freeland, and they showed that the, gen the population in the Everglades of Burmese pythons was genetically very depauperate, which suggested it came from a single or very few introductions. Uh, and uh, from there, it is, it is, it is not expanded in terms, of, in terms of genetic diversity. And if anything, over the last you know, number of years with the freezes, that, that, with the population going through such demographic crashes, that genetic diversity is going to decrease dramatically. But nobody has really taken a better approach to that, actually sampling more extensively over the Everglades and, and really looking at this in more detail and putting out a scientific publication that, that you, me, and, and everybody else can read and work from. And that's what we want to work on. We want to, we, we, we want to put together a proper, thorough population genetic study of, of the Burmese pythons in the Everglades in captivity and in their native range. And from there, we'll be able to start producing management strategies and, and making inferences about where these things are going and where they're coming from. But it's all based on sound science, not on speculation. Yeah, it's actually it, actual research data, not just somebody going, well, I think this sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, the, 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 the <coughs> study that came out suggesting that the nine species of constricted snake by rod and reed should be banned you know, two of those species, maybe three of those species, there's two species of anaconda, that, to my knowledge, have never been imported into the United States, yet they suggest they should be banned from interstate movement and exportation. That's interesting. I think there's a species of rock python that has never been or is very unlikely to be in captivity in the United States, yet they suggest that it's going to potentially take over America and it should be banned from interstate movement and, and import-export. How can you ban animals that have never been in captivity? They're so rare in the wild that we will never bring them into the United States. It's just ridiculous. And in fact, the fact that they have boa constrictors in that really gets to me a lot, not just as a boa constrictor keeper, because if boa constrictors were shown to be a, a significant invasive species, then I would be all for regulation to control those. If a species is invasive, we need to control it. We need to nip it in the bud as soon as we see it. We don't need to use it in postcards like they did in, in Florida, you know, attracting people to the Everglades. But, um, you know, they call boa constrictors giant snakes, giant constrictors, and if you look at the work of, um, of uh, Robert Henderson, they've got a, a book out on tales of giant snakes, and they specifically say in that book that they don't include boa constrictors because they don't consider const uh, boa constrictors giant snakes, and they're not giant snakes. <laughs> it, it just, it kind of, it gets to me, again, it's all, that, that Rada and Reed paper, it's all based on speculation. There's very little sound data in that there. Right. Uh, and that really bothers me. That really bothers me dramatically. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm just glad you're you're doing something about it. You know, um, no, we're, we're we're trying to. Yeah, know, and uh, but as I say, you know, if the study comes out and shows, well, you know what, Burmese pythons could actually spread up to um, uh, Washington, 
over the next 25 years based on climate change, then at least we've used sound science to say, right, you know what, there is an issue here and we need to take action against this. And what action should we take? It shouldn't be based on speculation. Scientific um, regulation should never be based on scientific speculation. It should be based on sound facts. Right, exactly. And that's, that's my issue right there. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying I, I don't have a, a stake in, in Burmese pythons or reticulated pythons. I do in boa constrictors. And if the work show that boa constrictors really have this strong uh, likelihood of becoming a severe invasive species in the United States, then I would be saying, right, well, we need to do something about it, and what can we do about it? Not, um, you know, oh, well, you know, we think it might be able to because it's a big snake and it could do this or that. That's all speculation. It has to be based on signed, um, signed data. Yep, very definitely. I couldn't agree more. And uh, so just to recap for our listeners, um, you guys are looking for Burmese python sheds just about three to four inches. Um, yep, yep. And you just need the color morph, if it's a color morph, male or female. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, kind of what age it is and who and they got it from. What age, uh, what age it is now and, you know, yeah. basically where it came from. That's correct. That's yeah, so awesome. Burmese pythons are great. If they've got um, African rock pythons, we'd love those samples. If they've got, um, you know, any like the Sri Lankan pythons or the Indian pythons, we would love to get some specimens from those. Okay. Some um, tissue samples, some shed skin samples, because this allows us to actually show that the Everglades population is Burmese are, are Burmese pythons, and they're not some strange integrate between lots of different things. Um, oh yeah, that was a lovely. I don't know if you yeah, caught that one. Super uh, super snake or whatever. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 We know we know that Burmese pythons can integrate with uh, can can hybridize with um, with uh, African rocks, but we we've also seen that they. The, and, and with reticulated pythons, but we've also seen that the fecundity of those offspring is very, very poor. Um, the likelihood of, of actually producing fertile offspring or healthy offspring is very limited. Hence the reason that we don't see a lot of those bat eaters or cat eaters or whatever they want to call them in captivity. Yeah. Um, so therefore, they're not going to be the giant super snake that takes over America. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to grow to 50 feet and eat Fifi the poodle. You know, no, I hope not. <laughs> You know, it's not gonna. I can't see it. It's not gonna snatch your children from the swamp boats, folks. No, 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 that's it. (laughs) Oh boy, definitely not. Oh man, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot. I I want to recap the uh, the Burmese python parthenogenesis issue. Uh huh. Um, The paper that came out. Just think about it that night. um, The paper that came out suggested that um, the offspring were female, and that they were clones of the mother, um, based on their genetic data. Well, the work that I've just done recently on reticulated pythons and ball pythons shows that to be very unlikely. Because uh, I'd always had issues why, why um, across these um, across snakes, and, and this includes also varanid lizards, they all produce parthenogenetically by a single mechanism. It's called terminal fusion automictic parthenogenesis, where the offspring are half clones of the mother. And whether it's male or female, we've discussed already based on where they are in the snake phylogeny. But the Burmese python... They suggested it was something totally different. It was a different mode of parthenogenesis, either apomixis or premiotic doubling, or you know uh, that. Um, and, but what that would produce is a is a is a, uh, a clone of the mother, not a half clone, and therefore that maintains genetic diversity of, of the of the mother and the offspring. Um, those offspring from the Burmese pythons, they were never allowed to hatch, so they were. Um, it was in a zoo that, that did not permit um, breeding of Burmese pythons. So they um, dissected the eggs at about seven weeks old and uh, dissected the offspring, and they sexed the offspring 
that determined them to be female, and they used a number of genetic markers that they showed appeared to show clonality in the offspring to the mother. Well, the, the work that I've done with more um, uh, more informative markers has shown that um, that in reticulated pythons and in ball pythons, it certainly doesn't follow the case. Follow, it doesn't follow the um, the, tra the story that um, was shown in Burmese pythons. So it actually is identical to what we see in um, in boa constrictors, um, and therefore it questions that original work. It doesn't question that that original Burmese python was a parthenogen. We believe that definitely, but it, we question the um, the conclusion that was drawn from it about the type of parthenogenesis that produced it and, and the whether it was clonal or not clonal. So while it doesn't make a lot of sense, while it might not be a lot of interest to the general listener because it's still a parthenogenetic species, um, it was just interesting to us that um, it appears that the mode might be different based on some new work. Wow. That, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, it's kind of neat. It, 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 fits, it makes more sense that you know they all the snakes all follow the same part of the genetic mode of reproduction. Just depending on where you are, that determines whether you're male or female. And we think that that is based on the chromosomes, the sex chromosomes themselves. And the snakes, the sex chromosomes. You know, like in like in, in in mammals, the X and the Y chromosome are different sizes. In snakes. Um, the Z and W chromosome in the advanced snakes, the rattlesnakes and so on, are different sizes. But whenever you get down to the pythonids and the boas, the sex chromosomes are the same size. So there's a lot of additional information there, a lot of uh, additional genetic um, material there that has not been lost through evolution. Uh, and we believe that that might have something to do with them uh, producing uh, females instead of males. And that's something we're trying to look into now with a more uh, genomic approach now that we've got the Burmese python genome and now that the boa constrictor genome should be available within the, the coming months. And we've got the, you know, the copperhead genome is going to be coming out soon. There's going to be a garter snake genome, uh, a cobra genome. Wow. Um, yeah, quite a lot of stuff. And we're talking about other potentials as well. Um, another talk is so just does a lot of the stuff, talking about coral snakes, uh, maybe Gila monsters, maybe some uh, Bothrops species. Ooh. So it's great that we have this, this uh, ability to do that now. You know, it's, it costs a lot of money, but with people like Todd Casto, then you know these guys are, are going to change the way we look at the, the genetics of uh, of reptiles. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's awesome work. Well, uh, Dr. Booth, I don't want to keep you all day. I know you got <laughs> a million projects going. So, uh, any final words uh, for our listening audience? I don't think so. I think um, maybe I'd like to come on again at some other time to talk about some rattlesnake work that we're um, we're planning to do with uh, Western Diamondback rattlesnakes. Um, oh yes, most definitely. Anytime you want to talk looking at, um, Yeah, great. Specifically looking at how um, rattlesnake roundups are affecting the genetic diversity of Western Diamondback rattlesnakes or any rattlesnake species that's harvested. So I'm currently working with some people on um, getting samples from natural areas that are not harvested. And we're then going to see about getting samples from these harvested areas. And use a genetic approach to understand what that's doing to the genetic diversity and therefore um, the adaptive potential of those populations. Because if we're losing individuals and we're reducing genetic diversity, then we could potentially be sending these populations into these kind of extinction vortexes. So at some point in time, once I'm a bit more um, uh, free up to work on that project, it's something I'd love to come on uh, on again and talk about because I think it's something that the listeners could also maybe get involved in. Uh, about maybe collecting, if they see dead on road specimens, you know, being I'd be able to have, if they could help by collecting samples, collecting specimens, and sending them to me or sending tissue samples to me, that would be fantastic. I'd also like to come on and talk about some citizen science projects that I'm trying to develop with copperheads and cottonmouths, and, and generally most common North American snake species. 
so that we can start really mapping where species, where snakes are occurring in our cities and in our towns and so on, seeing what's there and how diverse the, the reptile f uh, f fauna is around us. Mm -hmm. um, so we just get a better understanding of how reptiles really play a major role in our environments. Yeah. So maybe yeah. in a couple of months' time, I could maybe come on board again and, and talk about that. Oh, we'd definitely love to have you back on board. And once we uh, get off the air here, uh, I have uh, something I'm going to share with you about uh, some of the rattlesnake roundups and things, but uh, okay. we can't release that on the air yet. <laughs> so. Sure. That's fine. So there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Warren Booth in the Reptile Living Room talking about reptile parthenogenesis. And uh, as you heard, he would like your input as far as uh, invasive species and uh, python and, and uh, boa species that you might have shed skins of that you can uh, send into him. And of course, uh, we'll put his link there in the show notes so you can get direct contact with him. And once again, we are always brought to you by Herpeticulture House Magazine. That's herphousemag.com. Subscriptions to our uh, magazine are just $10. Uh, that's for one year. You get the uh, six issues plus the annual of that year uh, completely free. It is a peer-reviewed magazine and edited by none other than Dr. Robert Sprackland. And we look forward to seeing you right here next week in the Reptile Living Room. Thanks for tuning in. <music>